Well, it's Palm Sunday. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a while now. Um, And I'm going to ask that you would actually not even turn to your Bibles yet, but that you would listen. Um, Sometimes we've lost the art of listening well to the Scriptures read. So I want to start by reading the account that we're going to be covering today, uh, which is the crucifixion. So listen along. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they, the soldiers, brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And the soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them. Can you just picture all this? To decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. It was 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him to one another. He saved himself. He cannot save Himself, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, yeah. And those who were with him, crucified with him, also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, when it was noon, there was darkness over the whole land until 3 a.m., And at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women. Looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Lord, we just pray 
that we would get more of you out of our time in this text. We just sang some magnificent words about you. Help us to put the beef behind those words here. Now, blow our minds, show us you. We are here. Thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. It's interesting. The account that I just read is given by uh, the human author Mark here, obviously God's word, uh, penned through uh, Mark here. I went through and actually did some geeky things with the text. I... uh, uh, sought to find out how much percentage of the text was actually about Christ on the cross and how much was everything else. And here's what I came up with, round numbers. 90% of the entire text here talking about the crucifixion that I just read through, 90% is about everything going on surrounding the cross. It's all the activities and the hubbubs and the people involved. Only 10% is actually, Mark, he's in on Jesus on the cross. Here's the interesting thing, though, for me as I thought about this. The 90% of all this hubbub going on, I think Mark records it in such a way that he is trying to help us understand this unfathomable forsakenness that Christ is experiencing on the cross. I mean, 90% is just like forsaken, forsaken, forsaken all around him. And then even the 10% that Mark records on the cross is about his forsakenness. This whole text just screams this idea that he is forsaken all alone on the cross. But here's the deal. We're going to make a commitment, and I'm going to assume you're going to answer in a positive way. We're going to make a deal because we are not going to leave this text sad and grim. Okay? That is not how the Lord would want us to leave this text today. Instead, what we are going to do is we are going to leave this text in awe. And we are going to leave this text blown away by what the Lord has done. Okay? Agreed? Okay. You don't know because I'm leading you. So that's what's going to happen. All right? We are going to lead this with great excitement. Okay, let's do this. Let's dig in. Let's dive in. We're going to talk about the surrounding events. I see eight surrounding events happening in the text here. Let's work through these. The first one is the death squad. The Roman death squad. The soldiers is verses 21 to 25. Uh, uh, by the way, let me, little things about the death squad. These guys are trained Torture executioners. And know this, these are not like half-brained, knucklehead, you know, just morons. These guys are skilled at their task. They kill people with amazing ability. They kill people for the purpose of torturing them to the maximum capacity possible. They're trained to do that. I'll add to that this. Historically, it has been estimated that by the time Christ was crucified, 
there had already been some 30,000 crucifixions that had taken place in Israel alone. What does that mean? That means the Romans over years have had a lot of practice. 30,000 men just in Israel have been executed through the process of crucifixion. I'm telling you, these guys are experts at what they do. Every movement, every mode, everything that happens here is not just this. Sometimes you get this picture like these kind of drunken guys. Just, ah! It's not what's going on at all. Not at all. These guys are amazing professionals. They really are. And part of what this means is, is that the ones who are doing Christ and the other three here, they have likely seen and or been involved in the process of, I'm going to make a guess, a hundred other crucifixions? These are professionals. The death squad. We see what happens here with them. Uh, what we find, we pick them up at the end of verse 20 is they're leading Jesus out. They've already beaten him within an inch of his, inch of his life. They, they are now leading him outside of the city. They do not want to crucify a person within the city walls. That's a, a get them outside of the city. Uh, we see in verse 21, they force a man to help, as the text tells us, to carry the cross. This is Simon of Cyrene. Uh, honestly, he just disappears from the rest of the text. Uh, there's some interesting things about Simon of Cyrene, but I want to say this. I don't think that's Mark's focus, and I'm not going to go there, even though he ties a few of, of his kids that associated. It's very possible that Simon of Cyrene became a Christ follower. And yet, I'm going to leave it there because the rest of the mood of the text is they, 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 and they, and they are all referring to the Roman soldier death squad. So I'm going to stay with that. So they, they even force this guy, it's from this angle, as they're carrying down the road, they force this guy to come in and carry Christ's cross. Uh, that's awkward. Uh, then verse 22, they arrive at Golgotha. By the way, Golgotha is not the place where you go with your kids for a picnic. It just feels like death, smells like death, tastes like death. And by the way, it's like right on the main highway. Why would they do that? So that people would see and fear. Verse 23. Uh, the death squad, they offer Jesus, it says, some wine mixed with myrrh. Uh, Jesus does not take it. It's interesting. Myrrh, that, that sounds like a familiar thing. Didn't they bring, didn't the, 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 the shepherds they, uh, so forth bring Jesus some myrrh? Part of that? Yeah, it is. Myrrh was a scent. It was a beautiful smell. But myrrh was actually another use of myrrh back in that day was as a narcotic. And people would give myrrh to people in a drink as a narcotic. But know this, the soldiers were not giving it to Jesus as a sympathetic, let's kind of cool down the pain. Here's what was really going on. In the process of it, when they would get out and they would have and get ready to nail the guy down. I mean, if you are being nailed down, would you not be like throwing a fit? And so what they would do at a certain time, they would give uh, the, the, the person being crucified some wine and myrrh in a, in a proper amount, seriously, to give them a buzz for a little bit, actually so that they would not fight as much. This is not a loving moment. This is a functional moment. 
It was right in time with everything they've done and over the hundreds and thousands of crucifixions, they've learned that at a certain time, give them some of this, they'll get a little buzz, why? So that they can pull their arm, drive a steel stake through it, pull the other arm, drive a stake and their feet and they won't fight as much. It makes it easier for the soldiers. So that's what happens. Then verse 24, the cross is raised. Just picture it in your mind. You don't need a movie. You can picture it in your mind. And what happens? It's like verse 24, and they crucified him. And I mean, not even taking a breath, not even a period, not even a semicolon. (laughs) And what are they doing? The death squad is there casting lots for Jesus's garments. Now we could get into all the prophetic things. I'm just not going to be going there today into all those, but there are prophetic realities on what takes place through all this. I'm staying with kind of the flow that this was a job. The soldiers crucified the guy, gave him some stuff, nailed him out, raised it up, and did what they did with every person crucified, if you will. They get a little reward, and it's a game. It's just another day at the office. And they were doing their job, and they were excellent at it. Verse 25 It's 9 a.m. Friday morning. By the way, what week is it? What's the special event going on in this week in Jerusalem? It's Passover week. So there's a couple million people, and it's Passover week, 9 a.m. Don't forget the time. The death squad. Secondly, second thing we see is a citation. There's this citation, verse 26, they put a sign on Jesus' cross that says, King of the Jews. Why did Pilate have it put there? To irritate people. He had it put there so that anyone on the ground watching it, especially like the Sanhedrin, it just irritated them. And yet within the whole of it, it also became a mocking reality of the one who the cross it is nailed to. So you have the death squad. We have a citation. Number three, we have two criminals. Verse 27, there are two robbers crucified, crucified, one on Jesus's right, one on his left. It's just so intriguing to me. Why isn't Jesus on the end? I don't know. As a kid, I just thought that's the way they did it because he's the center of the story. <laughs> but the fact of the matter, he's in the middle. It just adds to the surroundedness. And by the way, look at the end of verse 32. It tells about these two that are on the cross. It says that they are reviling him. They're insulting him. It's so interesting. Mark does not tell about one of the guys on the cross having a different kind of conversation with Christ. Mark leaves it at the point of reviling. Why? I think Mark, again, is setting this text. Everything happening around Christ is hatred. And so Mark only tells us about that aspect of kind of the angle that he's coming from and helping us grab a hold of the story. Fourth, we have the passers-by, verses 28 through 30. Tells about these passers-by, and and those who passed by derided him. I love this. It just gives the whole description. This is so Mark. Wagging their heads. Don't you just get that? Like, "Mm, Wagging their heads. Yeah, so you say you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. You loser. That's basically what was going on. So let me sum it up. We're halfway through the eight. 
Here's what we have in the text. A death squad that's executing Christ. A citation mocking Christ. Two criminals insulting Christ. And passerbys who are wagging their heads and seeking to defame Christ. By the way, you can never defame Christ. Number five, the Sanhedrin. Verse 31. So all the chief priests and the scribes, this is like the supreme court religious leadership of the day. We've met them time and time again over the last months. So also the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him, look at this, wimps, to one another. I mean, that's really easy to do, isn't it? Uh, but they here, it tells us to one another. Yeah, he saved himself, but he, or he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe liars. Listen, these guys just like never zip it, do they? I mean, here they are in their arrogance and, and their wickedness and their blindness and frankly, just their straight out self-righteousness everywhere. Not taking a moment to listen, only concerned about their little kingdom in their own little world. And they're mocking Christ, but do know that every arrogant work that is spoken at the foot of the cross will come back. It will condemn them. The Sanhedrin. Number six, verse 33. This is interesting. This is the one non-people thing that's going on right now. Verse 33. uh, What happens? What happens is a curtain rips. It says, and when the sixth hour, when noon had come, I'm sorry, I got mixed there. We're in the darkness. And when the sixth hour, when noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until what time? Until three, how many hours is that? Three hours. It's dark. And and I, I, I don't know the depth of darkness, but I do know one character about God. When God does things, he does it really well. And so I'm going to assume that when it was dark, It was like dark. Uh, I remember our family once we were in one of the caves in southern Indiana, Kentucky, kind of a thing. Yeah, we're not going to the game. And uh, with that whole thing, and and you put in the cave, and you're there, and they shut the lights off, and you put your hand in front of your face, and you can't see the hand in front of your face. Uh, I'm I'm just guessing. I don't know. but, But it went dark for three hours. How intriguing. God is so cool. During the point of the day in the Middle East when the sun is at its peak, God shuts it down. Coolest thing. So many things we could talk about with this. I mean, darkness in the Old Testament and the New Testament so represents clearly judgment taking place. What's happening during this time? But but let me bring this. Because of where we're at right now with flowing through the text, I wonder right now what the death squad is thinking when the lights went out. I wonder now in all of this what the the criminals are thinking. What just happened? I I wonder in all of this what the passers-by who don't know where the road is anymore. Who shut the lights out? It, 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 I wonder what the Sanhedrin is thinking now. These arrogant cusses at the foot of the cross. And wham! Something supernatural just happened and everybody knows it. 
by the way, the word in the Greek, and I don't know how far extent, but it's not talking about like right around the cross, it went dark. It's this broad area. I don't know if it's the whole earth or if it was just the area, Jerusalem or what, but it went dark. And God got at some attention from it. And judgment is taking place. Let's keep going. Number seven. By the way, verse 34, at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out. Were the lights off or on? I I, I don't quite know, but I'm going to assume off. Can you imagine that? If the lights were off in judgment, and he cries out, and you hear this. Ooh. Powerful. Number seven, the bystanders. Verse 35 to 36. Uh, the, the idea here is these are not the, the ones passers-by, but there were ones who were just like there. Uh, the idea is, the uh, original idea is some of the standing-by ones. Uh, so after hearing what Jesus just said, we'll talk about that in a moment, they actually kind of join in the mockery game. By the way, uh, where it says, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, beholding he was calling to Elijah. This is a mocking statement. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, uh, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down now. By the way, you can read that and kind of get an idea that someone's got a sympathetic heart. I think this is a co- continuing mockery of what's going on. They're just playing with this guy hanging on the cross. So we have the desk god, the citation, the criminals, the passers-by, the Sanhedrin in the darkness. And then we have these bystanders. And a final activity. Out of all the grimness and the forsakenness, this one is cool and yet adds to the reality. Verse 40 to 41, and there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. Salome is the third woman. When he was in Galilee, Jesus was, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's this group of women. Is it three? Is it five? Is it 12? Is it 20? I don't know. But we know of three, Mary for Magdala, by the way, uh, here is a, a woman, uh, likely a single woman. Uh, Jesus had cast demons out from her. Second Mary is the mother of James, uh, not one of the apostles, James the lesser, if you will, and Joseph and Joseph. Salome, the mother of James, one of the apostles, and John, likely the sister of Mary, uh, Jesus' mom. This is a group of ladies that have been part of the ministry team over time from up in Galilee. And they come down and they've been ministering to Jesus and the 12 for a period of time. And it's just so sweet, so cool. But there is something that Mark notes here. They're at a distance. And this is not in any way a condemning statement of these ladies. The fact of the matter is, is they're at the right place. I mean, this is a gruesome event that's taking place. They're devastated in all of this. And yet Mark includes this distant thing. I think, honestly, Mark is helping us see there's a bit of tone that that even the ones who have been faithful to him, even they're at a distance. Everything is as a distance within it. Women. The whole Adam and Eve sin mess that took place where Satan coming after Eve and Eve 
talking to her husband and so forth. You know, not a shining moment for women, women but I got to tell you here, ladies, way to go. I'm serious about this. Way to go. Way to go. The part that moves me is where are the blasted men? Let's go back to the Adam and Eve thing. And when they sin, Adam, dude, get off the lazy boy and help your wife out. And we come here at the cross. Where are the men? I'm serious. Where are the men? And guys, by the way, I'm going to make this comment. I've heard from a number of single women over the years. Where are the godly men? And I thank God for so many godly men here, but I put this out within. Listen, Satan doesn't have to take us out. He just has to take us off the scene and nullify us. Guys, there's a message in this. Thank you, ladies, for standing afar. You were there. But my kin weren't. Men, I'll leave it there. Alone, forsaken. Everything, everything is a pouring on of Christ. Whether it's distance or whether it's insults, or whether it's the guys hanging next to him, or whether it's the soldiers, or whether it's the sign next to him, everything is pointing to this guy on the cross. You are alone. We go from what's surrounding the cross to what's on the cross. What's happening on the cross? Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, What time? Three o'clock. Jesus cried out with a very soft voice. No, with a loud voice. This is the only thing Mark records Jesus saying. Jesus did say some other things on the cross, but I'm not going there because Mark doesn't record them. Mark is trying to move with the purpose. And this is the only thing he concludes here. Eloi, Eloi, lemasabachthani. It's interesting. It's Aramaic. It's his original, Jesus' original mother tongue. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) Jesus has now been on the cross for six hours. Three of those hours, it has been dark. What's been happening from noon to three? Well, one, what's been happening in the temple from noon to three on the inside of the wall? Every Passover at th- on this day, at this time, from noon to three, this is the time when some 200 plus 
thousand lambs are sacrificed from noon to three. And from noon to three, lights out. Oh, I don't know if that meant that within the area where they were killing the lambs, whether that meant candles out too. Could be. If God can save the man one night and make it go bad the other night, he can take the candles out too. I have no idea. But we do know this. During noon to three, it was absolute total chaos during the sacrificing of the lambs. That's what's going on in the temple. Just imagine the chaos. But here's the coolest thing ever. The Godhead knows everything down to the minute. And at the end of the time zone, when everything's in chaos from noon to three to darkness, when the 200 plus thousand Passover lambs are being killed at that moment, at the very end of it, while all these lambs, whether in chaos or not, while all these representative lambs are being sacrificed, bam! Not at 2.30, not at 2.45, not at 2.55, at 3 o'clock, the Lamb declares the forsakenness and dies. Theologically, I'll restate that here in just a minute. Is that not cool? I mean, from our place, from our position, looking at this, this just is a reminder, God is in control of the minutes. And everything that takes place, he could have done it any time, and it'd be like, who cares when he dies? Oh, it cares though the Godhead, because like when all the lambs are dead, the big lamb's going down. And there needs to be no more lambs after it. Because the lamb has been sacrificed. Well, that's what's been going on in the temple. Uh, what's been going on with the Godhead? I'm just going to say this, folks. For me to try and explain what is going on with the Godhead in this whole thing, I have tried all week, and I can't. It is a glorious mystery. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, read from two others who are smarter than me and just listen to their words. And yet, by the way, even in their words, it's this idea of this whole thing of Christ becoming our sin and God's back, the Father's back turning is a mystery. But just listen, here's one John MacArthur. He says, Jesus was crying out in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. is the only time of which we have record that Jesus did not address God as Father. You see that in the text? My God, my God. Because the Son had taken sin upon himself, the Father turned his back. This is a great and imponderable mystery. In some way and by some means in the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from the Father for a brief time at Calvary as the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son who in matchless grace became sin for those who believe in him. Tim Keller says this, This forsakenness, this loss was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. 
This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect. And Jesus was losing it. Jesus, I love this, was being cut out of the dance. Keller uses that term as he talks through Mark. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Did you hear that? The maker is being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was not a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you and for me and for us. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to be forsaken by the Father. And the judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a mystery of unfathomable forsakenness. Forsaken, it means to be abandoned, to be deserted. To be deserted by the Father. My friends, this is just stunning. This is just heart-wrenching in all of this. And in the darkness, sin is being poured out vicariously on the sinless, perfect Son. And Jesus becomes our divine substitute in our place. And as Scripture says, Jesus takes upon himself, Isaiah 53, 5, our transgressions and iniquities, becoming Galatians 3.13, a curse for us. And 1 Peter 2.24, bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And 1 Peter 3.18, the just one for the unjust. Becoming 1 John 4.10, the propitiation, the sin offering for our sins. Thus 2 Corinthians 5.21, the father made him who knew no sin to be sin. Being Matthew 28, 20, 28, a ransom for many and all to the glory of the Father. Friends, he did not take his own life on the cross. He surrendered it up. No one killed him. He gave it up. Do you remember way, way back when we started, when they started heading down to Jerusalem and Mark in the text told us that Jesus led the way. No one took his life He was going to give his life up. That's why in this moment, while it's so sad and grim, there's joy in this. We don't see him fussing, trying to do the nail thing. I don't even think he needed the wine with myrrh to have a little bit of a buzz while they were doing that. He was there to go down and up and out. And he's the one, and that's our savior, folks. Sometimes you may be seeing a movie this weekend or this coming week to where it's like Jesus kind of got caught or, or Jesus is like trying to figure out who he is. Oh, that's heresy. He went to the cross and gave up his life. Verse 37, the perfect lamb has been sacrificed. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. I'm assuming it's the, it is finished and breathed his last. Surrounding the cross, on the cross, lastly, out of the cross. Just three quick things. Number one, verse 38, out of the cross came a torn curtain. A torn curtain from top to bottom. 
It's, it was the curtain that separated people from going into the holy of holies in the temple. It was the curtain that said, you stay on this side, this side. God is represented in his glory on this side. <laughs> Torn. His forsakenness brought access. His forsakenness brought access that we might not have to be ever forsaken by the Father. A torn curtain is there. I mean, how cool is that? You're like a torn curtain. No, this is access to the Father. Another one implied. Not only was there a torn curtain, but from last Sunday, there was a lethal blow. If you were last Sunday, we talked about Genesis 3.15, said Satan would be delivering a bruise, a temporary bruise, but there would be coming one seed of a woman. By the way, that is most likely actually a statement saying that this would be one born of a woman that is divine because in all the Old Testament, the seed is always coming from the man, but it's the seed of the woman. And he came. And know this, Satan... Okay, I'm just going to say this. On Survivor the other week, we were watching, and they're at the Judgment Council. We haven't watched that for like eons. And we're at this, and they're at this council, and this guy, this arrogant guy from a city out east, and uh, he's there, and he comes into the council. He's just arrogant, like this is going down, and this, this person's going out, and he's just like, ah. you could just see it on his face. And they poked him. And after his... Buddy got booted. He's sitting there like, that was Satan. I mean, not that. (laughs) But that's like here, understanding it as we go through Revelation. You will be seeing, listen, this was the moment as we talked from last week. I want to bring that in. That on the cross, Satan has this aspect where he's like, woo! He's brought all of these various surrounding things taking place. And he's like, victory! The Messiah is dead and he's not on the throne in the kingdom on earth. Oh, but next Sunday... Dude, you're getting punked. There was a torn curtain, and by the way, there was a lethal blow. And last of all, and I want to finish with this, there was a changed centurion. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Christ saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, what did he say? You tell me. Yeah. Uh couple things on this guy. This is a guy of significant rank. This is not uh, one of the uh, helper soldiers. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm trying to help us understand. A centurion was someone who was over a cent, over a hundred men. This was, this was the guy who oversaw the whole crucifixion. This is the guy who all the other guys were under his authority. This is a man of military rank. Military rank people whom I meet are sharp thinking they get things. 
And this is a guy who has been through, if not heard, plus what he's been through and done, probably a hundred or more crucifixions. This is an expert, as we talked earlier, who knows the whole process and, and everything that's taking place, including the lights going out for three hours in all of this. This is the kind of situation where he is like, I am telling you there is no crucifixion that's ever been anything like this whole situation. And his testimony should be heard by everyone in this room loud and clearly. I've seen these things before. I'm an expert at all of this. And what has just gone down from this morning until now, this is a divine thing. I cannot explain it. I can't even go there. But I've done bunches of these, and this is out of this world. Even in how Christ dies. It's a testimony. It's just a wonderful, wonderful testimony of what's taking place. Surely, This man was the son of God. By the way, son of does not mean less than God, does not mean a child of God, does not mean born of God. It's it's an equal to God. He is saying, surely this man was divinity. I would say this. Without the curtain and without the centurion, we would leave this whole scene quite grim. But we don't leave that way. Because Sunday's coming. And uh, Satan will be fully punked. And we will have full hope. And by the way, this is all fully true. This is no game. This is no fairy tale. Just ask the centurion. Hey, two things. Because of Christ's forsakenness, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've come to that place where you've received Christ as your Savior, because Christ was, had the Father turn his back on him, if you know Christ as your Savior, the, fa- the Father will never turn his back on you. Never. His forsakenness means you and I never have to be forsaken by the Father. Praise the Lord, right? One other thing. His forsakenness should have us ask the question, am I living similarly to that? Let me just say it this way. Is there something you need to forsake that's time for you to forsake? For the glory of the Father. Is there? If there is, look to this. That's my Savior. One of the traits of my Savior was forsaking himself for the glory of the Father. One of the traits of a follower of Christ should be forsaking himself, forsaking herself for the glory of the Father. Is there something you need to forsake? Well, we're going to finish this way. It's time to take communion. What a perfect time to be able to remember what the Lord has done. All right, so I'm going to ask for the communion folks, if you'd get in place. I'm going to ask for the worship team to come up and 
and get in place. And, um, let me say this. If you know Christ as your Savior, if there's been a time where you just don't know about, but a time where you've driven the stake in the ground and you've made a decision to receive Christ as your Savior, this is an opportunity for us to do something, taking of some bread, drinking of a cup, to do in remembrance of. And by the way, we're not going to do it sadness, and we're not going to do it with grimness. We're going to do this with joyfulness. Because he was forsaken, and what the the bread and the cup mean is, I will never be forsaken in Christ. Woo! So the worship team is going to lead us in song. And when you're ready, just step out and come and grab the bread, grab the cup, bring it back to your seat. And then after the song, we will partake together and celebrate what the Lord has done. In Christ's name, amen.